Amen. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Aaron Vega, pastor of Redeemer Bible Church. It's a joy to be with you this morning. If you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be uh, looking at just a couple verses this morning, me- uh, meditating on the heart of Christ, uh, specifically His uh, mercy and patience, long-suffering towards His people and His love uh, towards His people as He forgives us of our sins. Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13 says, so, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. title of this sermon is Putting on the Heart of Christ. Putting on the Heart of Christ. I desire this morning, dear saints, that you would imitate Christ in your relationships with one another. That you would imitate Christ in your relationships with one another. This is a message specifically, uh, and a passage specifically, to Christians, for Christians, in a local church. And you can apply this to different other to other relationships that you might have in your life, but the primary point of this passage that God has designed is how you treat your fellow brother and sister in Christ, beginning, of course, in the home and reverberating out from there. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, uh, the Russian author who wrote War and Peace way back in 1869, He once said that Christianity, with its doctrine of humility, forgiveness, and love, is incompatible with the state, with its haughtiness, violence, punishment, and wars. Uh, He had some insight there. Our government and the governments of this world because they are filled with sinners who reject God, are normally characterized by pride, violence, punishment, and war. Don't we see that in the headlines today? The church is called to be a stark contrast to these things. We are called towards love, Patience, forgiveness. You see, true love, true love, and genuine forgiveness are distinctly Christian qualities. This is because true love and genuine forgiveness find their source in the one true God and His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Christian, you are called in your life to imitate Christ in this new life He has granted you. To imitate Christ in your relationships with one another. And in that, Christ calls us to two things this morning. To choose to love And to imitate forgiveness. That is to choose to love one another. And to imitate his forgiveness towards one another. First of all, we see that we are called here in this passage to choose to love. Verse 12 again, just to remind us. It says, so as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. So the context of this is that in the previous verses, verses 5 through 11, we have been given a number of sinful attitudes and actions that we must put off. 
uh, for example. Um, to put off sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Uh, to put off, uh, in verse 8, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech, and then lying to one another, in verse 9. A couple of lists of things that we are not to do as followers of Jesus Christ. But now we are entering into a new phase uh, of Paul's thought. We are here now told what to put on. So we've been told, don't do these things, put these off, and now put these on. You see, this is important in the Christian life, this, this model of putting off and putting on. I think often people uh, think of Christianity as uh, this religion where you just put off, where you just, it's a list of things that you shall not do. And that's all religion and Christianity is to some, to some people. But the reality is that Christianity is the passage through death, through the putting off of the old life and the entrance into a new life in Christ, a life of holiness, righteousness, and goodness. In short, uh, as a Christian, we are now free to live the way we were meant to live. So it's not restrictive. The Christian life is not restrictive. As a matter of fact, it is a, a life of liberation because you are freed now from sin, the power of sin in your life, Christian, and now you're free to just live for God. But this liberated life is not given to all. Because he says, so as the elect of God. Eklektos, the Greek word here for elect, eklektos, means chosen or selected. That is chosen and selected by God. This is, of course, talking about those whom God has chosen to receive his salvation that is found in Christ alone. Now, some might not appreciate or be familiar with or even like the doctrine of election. But the doctrine of election is a doctrine that God wants us to know and celebrate. There's much good in this truth. And it is unavoidable in the pages of Scripture. Now, Paul... If you would turn with me to Ephesians 1, because Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 1 uh, this wonderful model for how to celebrate the doctrine of election. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of of his will. See, Paul here starts off this passage with worship and praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, praise, praise the Lord. Bless his name. Bless him. Laud him. Delight in him. Worship him. Why? Because he has blessed us. Make much of him. Shower him with good words, as it were. Shower him with good thoughts. Why? Because he has showered you with good things. Blessings. Every spiritual blessing, in fact, in the heavenly places in Christ. Not just some. And not just most blessings. 
But every blessing that can be given to the believer is given to you, dear saint, in Christ. Isn't that a treasure? One of the chief blessings is found in verse 4. That he chose us. He chose us. In verse 5, he says it again a different way. He predestined us. He predestined us. Now, this passage tells us two things about election. When and why. When and why. Verse 4 tells us when. He chose us in him. When? Well, before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. God chose you before you ever did anything good or anything bad. He chose you apart from you. And why did he choose you? Why did he initiate your salvation, Christian? Verse 5, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Why? According to the good pleasure of his will. On what grounds did he predestine us? On what grounds did he choose to save you? It was according to the good pleasure of his will. Church, we did not choose God. God chose us. And it was not because of anything good that he saw in us. I mean, this goes back into the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, but because, here's why, because Yahweh loved you. Why did God set his affection on you? Why out of all the millions and billions of people on this earth throughout all of history, did he choose you? That you might experience his love. Why? Because he decided to. Simply because he loved you, Christian. He did not see what a wonderful addition to his family or to his kingdom you would be. It's not why. He did not see how much delight you would bring him because you're such a good boy or a good girl. He did not see that you had some spark of spirituality or some spiritual life in you that he could just fan into a flame. No, there was nothing there for him to love. And yet, he loved you. He chose you. It's not because we're great. I mean, look around. We're not anything great. God doesn't need to save a movie star or a, a, a music star or, or some, some star athlete. He doesn't need them. In fact, it's normal for him not to choose them. Why? 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Now, there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has, here's our word, chosen. Who has God chosen? God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not. That's you and me. Why? So that he may abolish the things that are. So that, here's the ultimate reason, no flesh may boast before God. Why did God choose you, weak and fallen and a wretch that we are? Why did he choose you and not you know, somebody more useful to him? Like some, some, some influencer. 
Why you? It's so that he'll get the praise. That's why. It's about him. His gracious election of us was completely sovereign. That means it was unconditional, meaning his election of us was entirely free, unearned, and undeserving. God chose you, Christian, because he loved you. And he loved you because he loved you. And what's striking, back in our passage, Colossians 3, he says, as God's chosen, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, from God's perspective, because of his sovereign election of us unto salvation, he sees you and I, dear saint, as holy and beloved. Now, holy... Holy means set apart. Of course, it means distinct. It means separated from that which is common. And so our holy standing in the eyes of God is the product of his choosing us. They go hand in hand. After all, he chose us and not others. And he was completely fair and right to do that. Why? Because he didn't have to choose anybody. Actually, if he was being righteous and just in his judgment, he would have chosen nobody. But because of his grace and mercy, he sent Christ so that he could choose you. Now, many are called to repent and believe. All are called to repent and believe in Christ, but only those chosen will come. Many are called, few are chosen. Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Not only are we holy, set apart, and we can have a whole sermon on, on that reality, that, that that's how God views you as holy Christian. You're a saint in his eyes. You don't have to earn sainthood. It's yours. But not only does he see you as holy, he sees you as beloved. Beloved. This is a sweet reminder of God's affection towards us, isn't it? Now, in, in our equipping hour, our, our Sunday school hour, uh, last week, I asked the, uh, the saints there to spend last week um, studying and just looking up the, the love of God and meditating on that, because I think we often do not meditate on the love of God. And if we're honest, it shows, right? In the way that we treat others, in, in, in the doubts and, and the fears that we have of life. So I, I spent some time this week just meditating on the love of God, and it was a sweet time. Uh, a, a few things for you to benefit. This is, as the beloved of God, that, that means that God loves you. You are those who are the recipients of the love of God. That's what it means, beloved. Loved of God. Why is that important? Why is that significant? Why should that melt our hearts? Well, one, because... The love of God is eternal and infinite. 1 John 4, 7 says, love is from God. So if love is from God, and it also says in 1 John, God is love. So it is, if it is his very nature, if love is in his very nature, then by, by logical deduction... That love, like him, is eternal and infinite. There is no temporal time limit to his love, and there is no bottom to his love. There are no fringes to his love, Christian. His love is eternal and infinite. His love is also the love of a friend. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Those are the words of Jesus. And then he turns to his disciples and says, you're my friends. Oh, Christian, 
You are a friend of God. His love is the love of the most loyal friend that you've ever known. His love is also a sacrificial love. 1 John 4.10 He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is sacrificial. That is, it costs Him a lot to love you, Christian. How much did it cost Him? His one and only Son. The priceless one. The firstborn of all creation. His beloved. He gave up. The Father gave up His beloved so that you can be what? His beloved. It's a sacrificial love. It is also a love that does not wait for us but initiates. First John 4.19 He first loved us, right? The love of God is, a, is the kind of love that doesn't sit around and wait for us to clean up our lives or get our acts straight. He just loves you. Now the thing is, is He'll love you so much that He'll change you. But He doesn't wait for you to change yourself and then He'll love because you can't. You can't change yourself. You can put lipstick on a pig but it's still a pig. Uh, you can put good deeds on a sinner, on a rebel, but he's still a sinner and a rebel. God has to change you. And because he loved us first, that's what he does. He comes to you and he changes you. The love of God is also a generous love, Christian. Romans 5, 5, the, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. The idea here is that it has gushed out from him, from his very heart into our heart, overflowing, filling every crevice and, and cavity and every part of our soul. His love is a generous love. He does not hold back. His love is also, uh, to put it simply, greater than we can ever imagine. Ephesians 3.19 talks about the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now what's striking is in that passage, he tells us to learn and to know, to study the love of God. And then he says, by the way, you'll never reach the bottom. But it is your calling in life, Christian, to ongoingly, day after day, know more and more and more of how much God loves you. That's what He wants for you. He wants you to... Because to, to, uh, the context says uh, uh, it's a love that is, is higher and, and there's no depth to it and, how, and, and there's a width to it and a breadth to it. He's giving all these spatial dimensions. And he's saying, look, you can take your Bible, it's your roadmap, and you can go and just try and, and wander and travel this life and find the edge of the love of God for you, and you won't find it. It's greater than you can ever imagine, Christian. And because of that, the love of God is a sure, certain and secure love. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I read that fast because it's a long list. But my goodness, we need to read that we need to think about that slowly. You know, we often, I, I mentioned this last hour, we, we often go to this passage uh, to defend the security or the preservation, perseverance of the saints, right? 
And it's right, it's true, because, you know, you know God is never going to lose you. You're never going to lose your salvation. If you're truly his child, if you're truly a follower of Christ, he'll never lose you, and you'll never lose him. And that's true, and that's good, and that's wonderful. But this verse is not talking specifically about your salvation. We often think, uh, you know, you go down the list, I'm convinced that all these things nor any other created thing will be able to cause us to lose our salvation. That's not what it says. It says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now, this is God's love for you. He loves you. And there is not a created thing in this world that will ever get in his way of loving you, Christian. It is strong and secure. You can trust it. You can bank on it. Now, Christian, you are loved by the infinite and the eternal God. Now, I ask you, is there anything better than that? That's a question. You can answer. Is there anything better than that? Thank you. Now, you know, this might get me in trouble. Uh, there are many young women in our culture that grow up and, you know, it's, it's, they're given this label of, you know, that gal, she has daddy issues, right? Uh, and it's shown in all different sorts of ways. But what, did, what does that mean? It means that that young woman probably grew up having never been loved properly by her father. Maybe she didn't have a father. Maybe her father mistreated her or neglected her. Now, I don't care if you have the best father in the world, you're going to grow up with daddy issues because none of us are perfect. But child of God, you are loved immensely and unfailingly by your heavenly Father. And so, yeah, you might grow up with all these daddy issues, but he fills that with his love. So you don't have to go searching for love in all the wrong places, right? You have one who loves you no matter what. And so it's with that in mind that Paul says, therefore, put on a heart of compassion. He says, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As those who are united in Christ, chosen, holy, and beloved, put on those qualities, Christian, which you so joyfully receive from God himself. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. As God chose to love you, though, you have to choose to do these things. That's why he says, so as the elect of God, do these things. Why does he say that? Why does he preface it? Don't forget, God chose you. Why does he say that? Right before he's going to turn and say, now you got to love one another. It's because you have to choose to treat people this way, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. You must choose to love other saints. Now, that does not mean that you get to pick and choose who you will and won't love. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, you are commanded to choose to love every believer even when they don't deserve it, and even when you don't feel like it. You must decide to love this way. You must choose to put on the heart of Christ. The command here is to be resolved in your heart to do this. Let's look at these, these uh, five things briefly. A heart of compassion is literally bowels of compassion. 
It could be translated, uh, if we take other passages in, into consideration, it could be translated tender compassions because the, the inner organs are tender and soft. Uh, it's translated uh, tender mercies. Uh, it's used in that way. So in the church, when someone is behaving sinfully or foolishly, our hearts should not be filled with anger or annoyance, but compassion. Grieve and, and have compassion. Grieve in your heart, Christian, that that person is not honoring Christ or delighting in him as they could be. It grieves the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? It should grieve us. Heart of compassion. Kindness. That is, make it your disposition to do good to others. Be quick, fast, to, to be a, a, a blessing to someone in the church. Now, this can take many forms. It can be a, a kind deed. It can be kind, encouraging words. It can just be a smile or a greeting on Sunday morning. You're called to be kind to one another. And he says also, put on, a, uh, put on humility. Humility. That is, have a right estimation of yourself. Now, this, this is all about self-esteem, right? Now, I'm going to say something. You should have a good self-esteem. What's a good self-esteem, though? It's by esteeming yourself as lower than your brother or your sister in Christ. That is a good and healthy self-esteem. To esteem yourself lower, less significant as the slave of your brother and sister in Christ. That's a good, health, healthy self-esteem. A bad self-esteem is pride. It's to think too highly of yourself. Is to think much of yourself. That's what the world calls a good self-esteem. God says, that's exactly the opposite of what I want in you. Now this humility will move you, Christian, to be a blessing to others. It will move you to be a blessing to others, specifically at the expense of yourself, because you're putting yourself below them, right? At the expense of self, that is, at the expense of your own comfort zone, at the expense of your social anxiety, at the expense of your pride, which are really, which is really the essence of those two other things. Your comfort zone and your social anxiety, that's selfishness. That's just what it is. Because who are you thinking about mostly in those moments? Self, right? God says, think less about yourself and more about your brother or sister in Christ. Be a blessing to them. Also, gentleness. Now, Jesus used this word for himself when he called himself gentle and lowly. Now, the Christian, to be gentle in this way, must, must not be harsh, reactionary, or easily frustrated. That's the opposite of gentleness. That is, when those differences between one another come out, be understanding of them. One author describes it this way. Gentleness is not a pointed finger, but open arms. That's gentleness. And lastly, patience. This is, of course, the opposite of being short-tempered. The word is literally long-tempered. So when others aren't growing or changing as fast as you want, he says, be patient. When they are slow to do what is right, you must be slow to anger. Rather, patience 
carries with it waiting. Specifically, waiting on God. So you are called to wait and trust that if they truly are a Christian, God will work on their heart. And He will change them. You just be patient. Now, you are called here to imitate Christ in your relationships with one another by choosing to love and and secondly, by imitating forgiveness. Verse 13. Bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Paul here, in the context of how we treat one another in the church, he narrows his focus to how, how specifically we are to react when we're sinned against. That's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? When somebody offends you. When one believer sins against another believer, it has the potential to be very damaging. It can split a church. So how can you, Christian, help mitigate the damage? And is it even possible to repair that damage? Well, God tells us. He says, first of all, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. This this word is most often used in the New Testament for enduring the persecution of unbelievers. So when he uses this word here in the context of the local church, where it should be safe, right? It should strike us. Because he, he normally uses it when, uh, for, for how we are to endure the mistreatment of unbelievers, the persecution of unbelievers. He says, you know, that same damage and hurt that comes as a result of persecution and how you respond in enduring those things, it happens inside the church too. Hurt happens here too. But we are to endure, bear with one another. Now, often those closest to us don't just sin against us once, right? But many times. Husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, parents, children, isn't that right? Aren't those closest to you the one who sin against you most? Why is that so? Well, it makes sense because those closest to us are simply exposed to our sinfulness more often. I, I'm, I'm sinning, you know, I'm trying not to, but we're, we're sinning as, as a regular part of our schedule. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, if I spend most of my schedule with you, I'm going to sin. You're just going to be in the line of fire. I'm going to sin against you, Right? So how do we respond? Especially when it's time and time again and again. Matthew 18, 21, 22 says, Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. You know, Peter thought seven. That's the number of perfection. That's, you know, that's a good biblical number. Uh, I think I got it. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. No, he's not saying a specific amount. He's, he's speaking uh, in hyperbole. He's saying, there is no limit to this, Peter. There is no time where you say, you know what, that's the last straw. You'll never sin against me again. I'm done with this relationship. When it comes to the church of Christ, there is never a limit to our forgiveness of one another. Amen. Our sins against one another in the church are not reasons why you should pick up and move to another church. One man said, you know, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. Why? You're just going to ruin it. (laughs) 
the calling here, Christian, is stay, endure, and work through the damage. How do we do this? Well, it's the next phrase, graciously forgiving one another. Graciously forgiving each other. You know, our flesh cries out at this point, says, you know what, pastor, that's just, that's just too far. I can bear with, I can endure that person, but don't ask me to forgive them. But I say to you, for your good and for God's glory, you must. This is what we must press towards. Forgiveness, reconciliation. Even through the pain and the damage, we must not stop short of forgiveness. Toleration is not a Christian attribute. That's lauded by the world. Right? Isn't it? Just tolerate one another. Don't you hear that? That's not what God says. He says love one another, bear with one another, and forgive each other. That's what he says. We're to be different from the world, you see. Now, this is not the most common word here used for forgiving in the New Testament. The more common word for forgiveness is aphiemi, that is to release, right? to, re- to, to, to let go of a debt or the hurt. But this word comes from the word charis, which is grace. That's why it's translated, uh, at least in my translation, uh, graciously forgive. So to graciously forgive is to release someone of a debt that they are unable to pay. So it is to graciously give them kindness. And grace, of course, has the idea of there's nothing good in them. There's nothing deserving in them. It's, it's undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited. So to graciously forgive is to, is to let go of that debt, especially when they are unable to pay, whether it's an economic debt, moral debt, or a relational debt. So when someone sins against you, this is to refuse to hold it against them. You see how you have to choose this? You must choose, I refuse to hold this against you. It is to release that offense. That is, it is to not collect on the debt. To not get even. To not pay them back. That's what this means. And he says, when, when you do this, well, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Now, what's striking about this is it's talking about real sin. This is talking about real sin. It, you know, sometimes you just don't like someone. And that's just your sinfulness coming through. You need to ask forgiveness. You need to repent of that. But we're talking here about a real complaint, he says, an actual blame, a a, a genuine fault of another. So in forgiveness, God is not saying to act like nothing ever happened. That's not biblical forgiveness. There is a real sin, and we must acknowledge it. We must bring it into the light if there is ever going to be this ability to deal with it properly. So this means that when someone sins against you, don't go and tell the pastor. You deal with it. Yeah, that's right. You must go to them and tell them that they sinned against you. And show them a verse that says that was a sin. Right? You've got to be biblical. And when they ask you for forgiveness, and that's assuming, of course, that they do, And we shouldn't be ready to respond that way if somebody confronts us. To be humble and ready to ask for forgiveness. When they do ask for forgiveness, you must graciously forgive them. 
Now, how do we do this? Well, he says we are to follow the example that Christ has modeled for us. He says, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. So briefly here, we want to think about how Christ has forgiven you of all of our sins and how he still does this today. And I think this would be a great uh, segue, if you would, into us taking the Lord's Supper, don't you? The forgiveness of God, Christian, is a majestic thing. God's forgiveness does not wait for us to clean up our act, but comes to us first. Colossians 2.13. Colossians 2.13. And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transactions. When did he forgive you? Was it when you cleaned up your act? Or when you started attending church and you earned his favor? No. It was when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were an unbeliever, he gave you a new heart. When you cried out for forgiveness, he graciously gave it to you. Now God's forgiveness is majestic also in that it flows freely and quickly because it comes from its very nature. Psalm 86, 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and by nature forgiving. It is God's nature to forgive. Now, some people will take that verse and say, well, you know, that's, that's just what he does. He forgives, so I don't have to worry about this until I'm dead or until I'm dying. No, that's not the right response. The right response that God, that God calls for is for you to cry out for his forgiveness today. Dear sinner, do not waste another moment of your life. Cry out to God today, pleading for him to forgive you of all of your sins, repenting from your life of rebellion and sin against him. And he says, it will flow from his very heart. He doesn't have to work it up. He doesn't have to get in the mood. It just comes from him. And when God forgives... His forgiveness is majestic in that he does not first need to get even, nor does he demand us to make things right. Because Hebrews 10.18 says, Where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. So when God forgives, it's done. There's no more payment for that sin anymore. It's gone. That's forgiveness. It's not calling it back into account and say, okay, now it's time to get even. Now, you know, I kept this in the, the, the file, kept this in the archive. Now it's perfect time. I can just cash this in, cash this vengeance in today. God doesn't do that. And lastly, when God forgives, it is a promise to not hold those past sins against us. Praise God. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now God doesn't get amnesia. He's all-knowing. He's just stooping in his language to our level. He's, he's saying it's, it's like I've forgotten it, though I know all things. Right? If he forgot our sins, if he actually couldn't remember our sins, he wouldn't be gone. So he, it's not that he can't remember them, but it, it is in our relationship, I'm not going to bring it back up. I'm not going to pull out those old skeletons out of the closet, and I'm not going to bring it up and, and use it to manipulate you. And that's a promise. Christian, the application is, go and do likewise. That's the application. 
Don't wait for that person to clean up their act or come to you first. You pursue forgiveness. And let that forgiveness flow freely and quickly from your heart as you commune closely with Christ. And let your forgiveness towards one another uh, not make expectations or not uh, require that person to pay back before you can, can feel that, you know, now it's fair, now I can forgive. And when you forgive one another, you are making a solemn vow, a promise, I'm not bringing this up again. Because when you do, then you're the one that needs to ask for forgiveness. As you have so graciously received the forgiveness of God and have been filled with His love, dear child of God, so also should you choose to love one another and graciously forgive one another. Imitate Christ. Put on Christ. Put on His heart. Imitate Him in your relationships with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that you would soften our hearts, especially towards one another, Lord. Give us a fond affection for our dear brothers and sisters. Help us to act on those things. Break us out of our comfort zone and our selfishness, Lord. Help us to make new friendships, new relationships. May we, may we be known as the friend of sinners, the friend of many, as Christ is. And Lord, when those times come that test our relationships, when sins are committed, may we bear with one another and graciously forgive each other just as you have done with us, Lord. Oh Lord, keep us close to the cross. Saturate our minds and our hearts with the truths of your love and forgiveness and grace. So that when that time comes, and it will come, when we need to forgive, that we'll be ready. I pray, Lord, that you would be exalted through this. This is all for your name's sake, Lord Jesus. If we can't do this, we can't bring you glory. So, Lord, do this in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.